Father, we know that you have called the church into existence. You have ordained it. You've made us members of the body of Christ, of the bride of Christ, through the experience of being born again. And then, Father, we know as we meet in the local cells, the local units of the church, that you are there. You are here to empower all that is done. And, Father, it is our desire to do what you want us to do. Uh, to even reflect in, in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray that, that your will might be done here this morning in this class and throughout this Sunday school as it is done in heaven. And Father, I pray for every class, adult class, the college, the high school, the junior high, the many elementary classes, that you'll be present in each class and empowering all that is done. And I do pray for Mike and Cheryl and Corey and others who may be in that class this morning. You'll give them special wisdom in dealing with these young people. And Lord, I know that uh, the problem is not unique to them, that there are many classes sometimes where uh, due to illness or something, uh, the number of teachers is insufficient. And we just pray that you'll be present to bring peace and order and allow the word to go forth in power. Now speak to us this morning today, again from your word. And again, we would ask as we Think of the words in James, that we will not just be hearers of the word only, but doers. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 46th chapter of Genesis, I'd like to uh, begin reading at verse 28. Genesis 46, 28. Now he, that is Jacob, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who are in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it shall come about when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Jacob is still head of the clan, and they're migrating from southern Canaan across the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula over towards Egypt. They're headed for the Nile Delta. It was a strange land to Jacob anyway. His, his sons had been there in a couple of times passing through. But to Jacob, it was a strange land. He'd never been any further south, it appears, than probably Beersheba, or not much further south than that. And so he wanted to be sure that he knew the way. He didn't want to wander around unnecessarily in a strange land where he would be considered a foreigner. And so he sent Judah. Interesting, is it not? He sent Judah to Joseph to obtain directions to the area that they were to go. Now, the scripture does not elaborate here on why he chose Judah. But I think he chose Judah because Judah has clearly, as we've noted as we pass through these past few chapters, Judah has emerged as the leader of the brothers. 
He has come out as the spiritual leader of, of these 11 brothers. And uh, so he is sending the one who, who had uh, you know, offered himself, if, as you will, before Joseph and, and certainly would be uh, the one that Joseph would have the greatest amount of trust in, probably. Sending him to Joseph to find out how to find Goshen. Now, what's interesting about this is Joseph could have said, all right, Judah, you, you go over here, you go down three gas stations, you turn right, and you go over here to the, you know, the corner store and you turn left. No, <laughs> he, he didn't do that. He didn't send Judah back with the information. He, he could have, of course, said, okay, Judah, I'm going to send my servant back with you. I'm going to send a member of the, of the royal bodyguard here who knows all about this. He's going to go with you and, and, and you'll direct the family there into the land. No, we discover that Joseph chooses to go himself. Joseph said, I'm going to go and I'm going to escort my family personally into the land of Goshen to the actual part of that land where I believe they should live. Now, why did he do this? After all, he's prime minister. He has all the affairs of Egypt to care for, all the way from the first cataract of the Nile, at least, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, that 700-mile length of land, is his responsibility. And they're in the midst of a crisis. They're in the midst of a major famine. And, and the doling of the food out to feed the, the population it has to be constantly overseen. You can imagine how much corruption can creep into a system like this. Uh, whenever you have massive bureaucracy involved, why corruption seems to follow uh, necessarily because of the human condition. <clears throat> and so he chooses rather, though, to go meet his family. Why? Well, as I studied through this, at least three reasons came to mind as to why Joseph uh, made this choice. Firstly, and most obviously, he couldn't wait any longer to see his father. He had waited for over 20 years. He had not seen his father for over 20 years. Now, he'd seen his brothers but he hadn't seen his father. And he'd gotten to that point where he didn't even want to yield one more hour than necessary before he would have his reunion with his father. When he could finally embrace that one that he had loved so dearly and had, had loved him in turn, of course, and, and that he had been separated from for all these years. Half his life, more than half his lifetime. He had been away from his father. In addition, he, of course, certainly was anxious to meet the wives of some of his brothers that he had never seen before and, and the children that were born, his nieces and nephews. I mean, the vast majority of them he would never have seen because he had not been with the family for at least 22 years. And of course, some of those children had grown up and were adults. And so he wanted to meet his family as soon as possible. And we can understand that, I think. I suppose many of us would have a hard time relating to, to Joseph's particular draw to his father because we may not have had that kind of a relationship with our father. But uh, in, in, his, in his situation, of course, uh, in the clan situation that existed in those days, it was uh, the clan chief bore great honor, regardless of how wonderful he had been as a father or otherwise. And uh, so that was a certain magnetism. But we know, of course, that Judah and Jacob had a very special relationship because Joseph was the son of that beloved wife, Rachel. 
And uh, there was no love between Jacob and his other sons to match that. Probably the love he had for his other sons combined only came to maybe a portion of that which he yielded or gave towards that son Joseph before Joseph disappeared. Secondly, I think he is demonstrating a true godly character here by choosing to do this, to humbly go and see his family rather than demanding that they come to see him. Come to my imperial palace and come into my presence and witness the glory and the honor of Joseph. I mean, can you imagine how that would be a temptation? You know, you're the kid that was kicked off the block and sell, sold down into Egypt by the other brothers. And of course, the brothers had already seen it, but you know, their wives hadn't seen it. Their kids hadn't seen it. Your dad hasn't seen it. Have them all come and, and pray down this great, this great street to this magnificent palace and, and witness the power and the glory of this lowly shepherd named Joseph. But, but he didn't yield to that temptation. Rather, he chose to go see his family to not require them to come and see him in his glory at all there in Memphis, which he could have done. They will go, but they will go to stand in the presence of Pharaoh later on. And so he chooses rather to go and do this. And I think the reason is because he knew who he was in the eyes of God Almighty. And that is a really important thing for all of us to come to terms with. We've got to come to terms with who we are as we stand before God. There's a great temptation for us in the human race to glory in whatever power we may have. And whatever position we may hold, we may choose to lord it over those of lowlier positions. It's a strong temptation. happens everywhere. It even happens within the church, unfortunately. And, and it's, you, you've heard the old axiom that uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so this seems to be true, unfortunately, in almost every situation. But he had come to realize that he had not earned the position that he had. He was not given it because he was worthy. He was given it because it was the will of God Almighty who alone is worthy. And although Joseph would not have available to him the book of Revelation with that beautiful picture that we have described, of course, throughout its length of of who God is and who the mighty angels are and, and uh, the great scenes of the end times. But certainly, as I was reading this, uh, this passage came to mind. It's, I don't think I have it on your outline, but in Revelation chapter 5, I'd like to just read that to remind us sometimes of who God really is and who we are vis-a-vis -vis God in Revelation chapter 5, we have one of the most glorious descriptions in all Scripture of God and His might and His power. Beginning in verse 11, John says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, just great clouds, hordes of these angelic beings, saying with a loud voice, and what follows is sometimes referred to as the sevenfold exaltation. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, 
to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And the great four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Sometimes we, we have a bit of a trite view of God. He's the one we just kind of run to every time we have a little need and we send up a little prayer and say, God, you know, I've got this headache and I've got to give this uh, presentation. I need you to take away my headache and that's perfectly fine and it's a good thing to pray. And I think we need to relate in all of our affairs to God constantly. But, but sometimes we begin to view God as if He is simply the one you push a button and He automatically responds you know, to whatever your need is. Rather than seeing God for who He is, the majestic one who is worthy of any praise that we could possibly give Him. You've all heard the song, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And that just begins to, to uh, reveal a little bit of how someone who truly views God in His glory wishes that he or she could, could give greater measure of praise to the one alone who is worthy of that praise. He has all dominion and power and glory and might and honor and blessing. I mean, all of this is God's. It's all God's. None of it is ours, except as He ordains to share it and to give it. And Joseph, I think, has come to realize that. He didn't have Revelation to read. He didn't have Isaiah to read. You know, I saw God high and lifted up and His train filled the temple. He didn't have Ezekiel's glorious vision to, to, to read about either. But he had come to know who God was and to know that this God was capable of, of meeting his need and making him whatever he chose to make him in the midst of a pagan land, a land who didn't know or honor the very God he served. And, and, and that's, I think, the way we need to come to recognize our situation. We're living in a land that's becoming increasingly pagan. We're living in a land that is ignorant of who God really is and, and for the most part, could care less. And, and to realize that uh, we serve the holy, exalted, and blessed one. And he's the only one who deserves our praise. And we need to view each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter how exalted a position we may hold. We, may rec- we need to recognize that we're all equal before God. And we're all to consider the next person better than ourselves. You know, that kind of puts it in perspective. You know. there, are, there are times when you have little empire builders, even within the church, and they build their little empire, you know, and they're the little king sitting up on the top and all these peons down here, down below. And that is not of God. The work may have begun of God, but, but it got distorted. And, you know, Joseph could have stood up there and said, I'm the mighty prince of this land. My family's going to recognize, they're going to see this. But no, he's a man of humility, a man who knew his God, and he was not going to revel in his power. Now, he would take a little bit of, a, of his power with him. When he would go to meet his family, he would ride, and we'll, we'll notice that in a minute, in a, in a royal chariot and all, all the rest of it. But, but that's just a little tiny glimpse of what he could have displayed. And, and that, the, the real purpose for doing that was simply to, so that they would see, it's really true. I mean, we, we haven't been just hearing stories from, from the brothers. We've been hearing the truth. He really is prime minister of the land. And, and so that they might rejoice in what God has done. And that's really Joseph's point. Rejoice in what he has done. And that's really what the church should be about. The church should be about united rejoicing in who God is and what he's doing for each of us. We may feel sometimes as if 
God's not doing much for me. You know, I got all these aches and pains, you know, and, and my kids are run amok and, and my parents are, you know, off in la-la land. And, you know, you just might feel like you're out there alone, but we're not. And, of course, that's one of the wonderful things about the church because the church can create the brother and sister relationship that we may not have otherwise. And it's really important that, that that's kept in mind by each of us, that, that we come here for the purpose of not just receiving, but also giving, of, of sharing what Christ is doing with one another and encouraging one another. It's, it's real easy to go around and you know, whack somebody upside the head with the Bible and say, you know, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> it's a little bit harder sometimes to say, you know, God really loves you and he's, he's helping you. Well, we're praying for you. But that's part of what we're here to do. I think thirdly, he was recognizing that caring for the needs of his family was more important than carrying out his position as prime, as prime minister at that particular moment. That none of his duties as prime minister were as important as ministering to the needs of his family at that time. And, and I really think that that's a truth that uh, needs to be heard by, by all. Because there are times when we're tempted to feel that our task, our job, our responsibility is so important that our family's got to be second place down the line, you know, and, and we'll, we'll just give them what little strength and time we have left over, but what's really important is I do this task. And whether that task is, is being a preacher or a missionary evangelist or, or, or CEO of a company or whatever it happens to be, that's false belief. That's not what God is telling us in the Word. As you read through the Word of God, it doesn't matter how much we may feel that our task that God has given to us is so important. It is never so important that we sacrifice a family or neglect our family because that's our first priority as a minister of, of gospel or whatever else we may be. Hopefully all, we're all ministers of the gospel to, to those around us. But our prime duty is, is to our family above all else. And if we fail to understand that, we, we miss out on part of what God is trying to teach us. And, and we aren't as, success, as successful as we might otherwise be. Because I think God will work through us to bring His purposes to pass if we're obedient to Him. I think there are times when we're tempted to believe that everything depends on me. You know, if I don't do it, it won't get done. Or if I don't do it, God can't get this thing done. Oh, God has all the capacity in the world to accomplish what he wants with us or without us. And he wants us to serve as his tool, but not to sacrifice that which he has given to us as our primary responsibility. In 1 Timothy 5.8, we read this verse. If anyone does not provide for his own especially those of his household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And that passage does not mean just to provide the financial sustenance for the family. It doesn't just mean you've given them dollars so that they don't starve to death. It means provide all that you as a parent, a father or a mother, ought to be providing for that household. The love, the care, the nurture, the wisdom, the direction, the prayer, the faithful, a witness of the word, all of those things in addition to the actual material part is part of what a father and a mother need to be providing for their household. 
And I think that's what God requires of us, first and foremost. And I'm afraid that some of us, may probably all of us, have failed in that area at one time or another. But Joseph saw the clarity at this moment of ministering to that family, and so he went to do that. When Judah brought the word that the family was nearing Egypt, they're, they're almost here, Joseph excitedly ordered his Merkabah, his chariot. This was a two-wheeled, horse-drawn war vehicle. This was not an ox cart like he had sent off to bring Jacob and the family back. This was a very, very uh, swift and maneuverable platform that was used in warfare. Chariot normally, when used in warfare, was driven by one man who was the driver, and then in the back of the chariot was the man who wielded the weapons. Whether it was a bow or lances or spears or whatever, were hurled from this war chariot to destroy an enemy. And of course, if the chariots were used all lined up and they came out of an infantry, almost wheel to wheel, they just mowed down the infantry as they charged over the top of them. And so they were the tanks of the ancient world, so to speak. And these chariots were normally drawn from anywhere from two to four horses, depending. And quite often when they were being used for uh, parade purposes, there were more horses. And sometimes then in war, there were fewer horses. But uh, what's interesting about a chariot like this is that it was capable of 15 mile per hour sustained speed over long distances. Uh, so, because they're light and maneuverable and with several horses pulling together, uh, this meant that Joseph could cover approximately from Memphis to probably about the place where he encountered his family was somewhere in the neighborhood of 75, 80 miles. So he was able to cover that distance in about five hours. So uh, he hopped on board, called for his royal chariot to come and hopped on board. And he probably said to Judah, come on, <laughs> come on for a chariot ride. And I don't think Judah had ever been in a chariot before. He probably only seen them at a distance. And uh, so it was an exciting thing for him, sort of like for us, you know, to hop on board some fancy hot rod, you know, and I don't know what to compare it to, a Maserati convertible or something, and, and go for a ride with uh, a champion driver. And uh, Joseph then took off swiftly to the northeast with this chariot. As he sighted the family caravan, I think you have to just try to put yourself in Joseph's place. He's going to see his father. He had longed for his father more than anyone else. You know, he could have longed for his mother, but that didn't matter, you know, his mother was dead. And so he couldn't long to actually see her as he could his father. There was hope to see his father. And so he was, as the caravan was sighted, you can imagine the crescendo of excitement within, within Joseph. The, the tension or the, uh, the excitement was mounting. I mean, he was nearly 40 years old, and he had not seen his father since he was 17. He didn't even have an opportunity to say, goodbye, Dad, I'm going away, like the prodigal son did, because he was not a prodigal son. He was involuntarily sent away. He was kidnapped without being able to say goodbye to his father. And he had not been able to show his father that the hopes that he had had for him were fulfilled beyond your greatest expectation, even beyond those, those dreams that I foolishly bragged about when I was a kid. Certainly, a part of his excitement was to be able to tell his father, God is real and God is faithful. God is real in Egypt. 
not just in Canaan, not just, just in our clan, but in Egypt, even though I alone have been the only believer. God is real. And how faithful and powerful God was in the midst of pagan Egypt. Pagan Egypt. His shepherd son, who one day had paraded around with a varicolored coat, you know, the nobleman's coat that his father had made for him and, and given to him. It was, a, it was a, a foolish act on the part of Jacob to do this for Joseph, but it, it was just one way he was trying to show his love. And, and he gave him this nobleman's coat. And uh, that coat, of course, had been stripped off of him. But now he was returning to his father dressed as the prime minister of Egypt, which was the most powerful land known in the world at that time. So although he'd lost his wonderful coat, he was coming dressed far more royally and more elegantly than ever his father could have dreamed. And he was riding up in a chariot, emblazoned with the seals of the Pharaoh. And undoubtedly, even though the scripture doesn't say it, but you can just imagine, I mean, the, the prime minister of the land's just going to ride out across the countryside all by himself? No. Certainly he had with him a military escort. So here he's coming with this military escort and this, this chariot with, with probably gold seals on the outside, uh, dressed as the prime minister of Egypt. It's hard for, hard for us in some ways maybe to, to relate to this because today, for example, if the president of the United States were to go someplace, yeah, he goes in a fancy car, but when he gets out, he looks like everybody else, you know, he's got a suit and a tie and he doesn't, you know, come out with big royal robes and uh, all of the things that would have gone along with being prime minister of Egypt at this particular time. Well, as they approached the caravan and Judah said to Joseph, yep, that's our caravan, I can tell. You know, they're off in the distance there, but yeah, it's, it's our caravan we're coming to. And uh, I think Joseph's eyes began to search from one ox cart to the other to find his dad. He, a, lot of, a lot of people in those ox carts he didn't recognize. You know, he recognized his brothers, of course. But uh, he didn't recognize all the women, of course, and all the children, and, but he would recognize his father. And he was looking from one ox cart to the other as he approached to spot his father. Then if you kind of flip over to the other side and put yourself in that caravan as it's crossing over into Egypt and, and somebody up front spots this, this, this royal regalia coming down the road, you know, hey, there's somebody from Egypt, somebody powerful from Egypt coming. And the word spread down through the caravan that uh, this could be it, this could be Joseph coming. And Jacob himself would probably order the ox cart stopped and he would get down off the ox cart and stand there with great anticipation. Certainly, you know, if, if for no other reason, to, to give honor to whomever this was, if it wasn't Joseph, some royal official going by, but hopefully that he would meet his son Joseph. The anticipation was high on both sides. Jacob's heart was probably beating faster than it ought to be for somebody his age. And Joseph's was too, as they anticipated this meeting. And as they drew near, you have this dramatic reunion. Scripture is very succinct, terse, concise uh, about it. In, uh, well, I'm still over here in Timothy. In verses 29 to 30, Joseph prepared his chariot, went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Well, I mean, that's pretty concise. Just kind of lumps a whole thing, bunch of things together in, in just a few words there. But if you can kind of be a part of the drama, 
Jacob was helped down from the ox cart to stand and watch the approach of this royal detachment. And he was, had his eyes focused on this chariot because very soon he recognized Judah is in that chariot. If Judah is in that chariot, maybe the other person in that chariot is Joseph, but I don't recognize that other person. You know, he's got Egyptian royal regalia on, and, and I don't recognize him. Of course, you know, he's beardless, which was uncommon for the, for the Israelites. And uh, so he had to wait. Of course, Joseph couldn't mistake his father. He reined up his chariot, I think, a few yards away and jumped out of the chariot, looked at his father and ran over to him and probably looked him in the eye and said, Father, I'm your son, Joseph. I think that you, you, we can hardly imagine the emotion that broke loose at this point. The scripture here teaches us and tells us that um, they wept together. The incredible joy, the incredible emotion built up over 22 years of time is being released in one great surge here. They surveyed each other very quickly and then the scripture says they fell on each other's necks, you know, grabbed each other in a big hug and cried on each other's shoulders. And the scripture says they did it for a very long time. Great sobs and tears pouring forth in this encounter. So anticipated, so incredible to many. And do you imagine the rest of the family? I think even the little kids, they weren't running around chasing sheep or something. They were probably standing there just awestruck at what was happening. First of all, they'd never seen a chariot like this close up. You know, it's sort of like having some long-lost cousin drive up in a, uh, not, not, a not a Mercedes, but in a you know, Rolls-Royce or, or some big fancy thing, all painted gold or, or whatever. And uh, they stood by to witness this fantastic family reunion. And I think they were all moved to tears by this. Nieces and nephews had only recently heard that they even had another uncle. And here he is. And boy, is he a different uncle, you know. I mean, look at him. He's a prince. Look at all the, the horses and the guards around with spears and, and shields and this glorious chariot with the four fancy white horses that drew it into their presence. I think they stood in awe of this obviously powerful and wealthy man who was hugging their grandpa or their great-grandpa, whichever it was, at the case. They had never seen anything like it before. It was a tremendously joyous occasion. I mean, these were tears of joy that were being shed. Those are wonderful kinds of tears. It would not be the last time there was a great celebration, of course, because Jacob came along. I mean, Joseph came along. He didn't bring his wife, didn't bring his children. So there would have to be that later reunion when he would bring his wife and he would bring his children and, and they would all be introduced to the family. And that would be another really wonderful party. And one in which jo Jacob would finally meet these two grandsons he had never seen, born in Egypt. And what's interesting is when we get to that passage, you'll see, these are not my grandsons. I claim them as my sons. <laughs> And he tells Joseph, um, any others you have, you can have, but I'm taking these <laughs> too. And they're going to be mine. And what's interesting is they do become two of the clan chiefs of Israel. 
they come, become two of the tribes. Ephraim and Manasseh, sons of Joseph, become two of the tri 12 tribes of Israel. Because Joseph, uh, you know, they become the tribes of Joseph, as it were. And then because uh, Levi becomes the priestly tribe and is not counted amongst the 12, Joseph's tribe is doubled to, to maintain the number of tribes at uh, 12. I think as Jacob hugged his son there, I think his mind went back to the tunic that he had made for his son. That princely tunic, that coat which had caused so much trouble, at least was partly responsible for it. I, I personally, the scripture doesn't say so, but I think he kept it. I think when the brothers brought it back and showed it to him, torn and with some blood stains on it, which they had put on it, you know, from a goat or lamb, I forget which it says, they, sl they had slain. I think he kept it. It was his only momentum of his son. The only one that mattered, at least to him, of his son, Joseph. And as he thought back at that, and, and now he sees his son arrayed as he could never even dream his son could be arrayed in the glorious apparel of the ruling prince of Egypt. It was a little foreign, of course, to him. It wasn't typical shepherd clothing, even fancy shepherd clothing, but nevertheless, it was truly wondrous for him to behold. I really think that Jacob sometimes thought, is this real? Has this really happened or am I dreaming? Now, I don't know whether he had to pinch himself or what, but uh, I think he had a real hard time coming to terms with the reality of this whole situation. But you realize how satisfying and completing this was to this man. Because when you read in verse 30 of the passage, it says, Then Israel, notice it doesn't say Jacob, it says Israel, the prince, said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. This was the ultimate fulfillment of his life. This is the most glorious ending he could have hoped for for his long tenure on earth. His beloved son that he thought was dead is alive. And not only is he alive, he's a ruling prince. And he has brought me into his land with all that I have for sanctuary. In the midst of a great crisis, he was content he was satisfied. He had obeyed God. He had brought the clan into Israel as God had said. I mean, into Egypt as God had said. And there he stood before God as Israel, the prince in this time of meeting with his son. God had relieved the sorrow that he had felt for those many, many years by giving him back his son. And now he was ready to meet his God. It's really the most important thing for each of us that we be ready to meet our God at any moment, in any place. We need to be ready to meet our God. We need to feel that we have walked with God in obedience so that if He were to take us now, we would be ready. We would be ready to meet Him. <clears throat> Certainly there were some things that Jacob maybe could have straightened out. Maybe he had already done this. Maybe he'd already asked his sons to forgive him for the way he had treated them vis-a-vis -vis Joseph and maybe even Benjamin. We don't know. But this man 
was in his own heart ready to meet his God. Well, Joseph, I think, then was introduced to all these nieces and nephews. You know, here's, well, we read the names. So we won't go back through them, you know. <laughs> all, all these nephews and a, and a few nieces scattered around. And then the wives of some of the sons that had not married before he was sold. In Egypt, he had to meet them too. So it was quite a, quite a, quite a day. And of course, they were, all of them kind of just kind of gaped at him, you know, as they hugged him, and, and here he was in all this royal regalia. Hard for them to, to relate to it, I think. But it was a blessed time. But when all the greetings were exchanged and everybody had been met and, and, and everything was taken care of, he got down to the practical matters of what came next. He showed them exactly where they were to settle by then I think they were already probably into Goshen. The scripture seems to indicate they had, they had gotten into Goshen itself, and so he had to show them exactly where in Goshen would be the best place for, the, for them to live, at least temporarily, and got them settled down. Of course, it wouldn't be hard for them to get set up quickly because they were a nomadic people. They lived in tents, so they just set their tents up. Wherever they were, they could settle down, and they didn't have to worry about building houses and... Uh, you know, putting in all the infrastructure necessary to uh, establish a community. They just pitched their tents and, and they were ready to go. Simple lifestyle. You know, pitch your tent, throw your cloth on the ground, and <laughs> you're all set, you know, for a good night's sleep or lunch or, or whatever else was next. He then rehearsed. He, he told them, I've got to go back to Memphis, and I've got to go before Pharaoh, and I've got to tell Pharaoh that you are here. And so he rehearsed with his family what they were to say to Pharaoh. Now, they're nomadic people. They, they were not accustomed to the civilized lifestyle of Egypt. And certainly they weren't accustomed to the, uh, all that went along with being in front of Pharaoh. There was a great deal of pomp and circumstance involved with being in front of Pharaoh. There was a protocol that had to be followed. And so he was filling them in on what they should do. And he emphasized to them that he was going to remind Pharaoh that they were shepherds from the land of Canaan, just in case you forgot, Your Highness. They are shepherds from the land of Canaan, meaning they're Asiatics. They have brought with them their whole sustenance. They brought their herds with them. So there are thousands of sheep and goats and cattle and donkeys around Joseph then instructed his fathers and brothers what they were to say to Pharaoh when he asked them of their occupation. They were to say that they were shepherds, they were herdsmen, and that they had been such from and their antiquity as a people. They had always been herdsmen. So he would be well aware that this wasn't something they just adapted quickly and therefore they could be changed to something else. They couldn't be switched over to to uh, you know, wheat farmers or something. But this is the long tradition of the family was a tradition of herding. All this instruction and explanation, I think, probably got Jacob and, his bro and Joseph's brother saying, what's he telling us all this for? You know, we know what we are. And, and why is he telling us this? Why is he telling us what to say to Pharaoh? Well, Joseph then explained. To emphasize that they were herdsmen with flocks would reinforce Pharaoh's earlier decision to give them Goshen because Goshen was a good place for flocks. 
And Joseph wanted them in Goshen because it wouldn't be terribly far from Memphis and because it was at that point in time the best place of forage left in the land. What little water did trickle down the Nile would uh, you know, spread out a little in, in the delta and uh, of course the years, the, the hundreds of years of, of uh, water flowing through the delta raised the water table in there so that there was at least some forage available for animals. Secondly, since Asiatic shepherds were despised by the Egyptians, Pharaoh would be wise in allowing them to live way out on the fringe up in this part of Egypt which is right adjacent to the Sinai and allowing them to live autonomously. Which of course was essential because if they didn't live autonomously they might be absorbed into the Egyptian culture, but living this way, this would guarantee their national and their religious independence. Now later we know from the story of, of, of Exodus that they did become slaves, but they still retained their separate identity. They still maintained their worship, although it had been, of course, weakened by, by centuries of slavery. They still held to their unique lifestyle and were not absorbed into the Egyptian population to disappear as so many have. If you've studied, for example, the history of Europe, you know that back like in the ninth uh, and, and 10th centuries, the, the Vikings came down from the north, especially from Denmark, and, and they attacked England and they attacked France and they went around the Mediterranean and they attacked Italy. And they established themselves in these areas, but in every situation they were ultimately absorbed into the larger population. The Danes were absorbed by the Anglo-Saxons so that there was no distinguished Danish group left after a period of time. The Danes who landed in Norway became the Normans and, and they were so uh, intermarried with the French that they took everything the French had and became absorbed within the French population and, and so did the Danes who ended up in, in southern Italy. Ultimately they were absorbed into the population. They added a few things uh, to the culture but, but as an identifiable group they were gone. So this wasn't to happen to the Israelites. They were to remain different, a kind of a square peg in a round hole, if you will, and be clearly identifiable and maintain their independence. In Egypt, the foundation of the economy was agriculture. The country survived primarily by agriculture, the growing of grain mostly. Now, agriculture is relatively easy to organize. It's relatively easy to control because a plot of land doesn't go anywhere. And so you can control the farmer and, and you can control the workers who work out there and you can control the water going out into the land. It's, it's easy to create a bureaucracy to control this whole thing. But herdsmen are different. Herdsmen are nomadic. And they move their flocks around and, and, and you never know where they're going to be next. That's one of the reasons why it's been so difficult, for example, to really draw borders in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula between Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Oman and some of these others, you know, the, the former Trucial Emirates over there on the coast, uh, the United, what they're called the United Emirates today, and Kuwait and so forth, to draw the borders there because the border goes out through the middle of nowhere. And, and the people who live out there don't pay attention to the borders. They move their flocks back and forth and they don't care what country they're in. And that's the way it's been for hundreds of years and that's why it's been difficult to even determine what the population is. What is the population of Saudi Arabia or Yemen or Oman? I mean, you just get a kind of a guesstimate because these people are moving all the time. 
And, and it's hard to control them. That's one of the reasons why the Arabs have been such a difficult people to, to bring under any kind of significant control for a long period of time because of their nomadic characteristic. And to the Egyptians, these, these herdsmen are uncontrollable, they're rude, they're barbaric, they're dangerous. Because when they get bored with what they're doing or they don't have enough, they attack some settled community. And so they were a despised lot in Egypt. They were portrayed in Egyptian literature and on the monuments as the very lowest level in the Egyptian social society. They were the dregs of society, almost the outcasts, if you will, in Egyptian society. Over a thousand years after this time, there was a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus who, in writing a, a kind of a monumental, well, the first really monumental history ever written, he describes the Egyptians, and in there he points out the fact that herdsmen, all herdsmen, not just shepherds, but herdsmen of any animals, were considered by the Egyptians to be the despised, the lowest level of society. I mean, you, you think about this. Herodotus writes this 12, 1300 years later, and it's an exact reinforcement of what the scripture says about the Egyptian attitude towards, towards shepherds. And obviously they maintained that attitude down through the centuries of time. That being true, we have to understand that Jacob and his sons would never have been invited to move into the land of Egypt and to settle down in one of the best pieces of land if it had not been for Pharaoh's great esteem for Joseph. And of course, Joseph's position was the result of a miracle of God Almighty. So God literally moved mountains, if you will, to create this situation and to put his people in Egypt, which would be the crucible in which the nation of Israel would be formed. And of course, it looks like a pretty motley crew when you read the first part of the book of Exodus. And, and Moses has a gigantic task on his hand to try to get this group out of Egypt and get them into the Holy Land. And as you know, he doesn't get the whole group into the Holy Land because they balk and, and, and God has to wipe out everybody 20 years uh, old and older, except for Jake, um, Joshua and Caleb, and, and then bring the rest of them later the younger group, who had, of course, grown up during the time, into the land. But God was behind it all. I'd like for us to read an interesting summary in Psalm 105, beginning at verse 16. He called for a famine upon the land, and he broke the whole staff of bread. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, he afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. And the king sent and released him, and the rulers of the peoples, and set him free. The ruler of the peoples, and set him free. And he made him lord of his house, and ruler over all his possessions, to imprison his, pin his princes at will. I mean, that's how much power Joseph had. He could put anybody else in prison except Pharaoh himself at, at Joseph's own will. That he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. And the point of it all is that it's the work of God Almighty. It's not the stroke of luck. 
not the wheel of fortune. It's not the effort of a bright man or the accident, fortuitous, you know, combination of events. It's the sovereign action of a God who had a plan. And sometimes we don't understand that plan. and We don't know why God seems to go around corners and follow what looks to us as a convoluted path. Ours is to but believe and to trust Him through it all. Next week, we're going to look at how God provides for Israel in the land of Canaan in the midst of five more years yet of famine.